So 1 Corinthians 3:18 to 4 verse 5. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mystery God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light what has hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And that will each time will each will receive their praise from God. Great job, boys. And you too, Kat. Uh, my name's uh, Jamie. I'm one of the ministers here at uh, Gosford Presbyterian. Uh, I'm going to pray as we uh, unpack this part of uh, the Bible together. Let's pray to our great God. God, our Father, we ask that this morning you might speak to and through us. We pray that you might work in our hearts and minds, that you might cast from us the anxieties and fears and distractions that press on us today, and that we in this moment might just be present, that we might sit and hear what you have to say to us. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of the things that has uh, confused uh, historians and sociologists uh, and anthropologists alike is really how it is that Christianity has uh, become the major world religion that it is. And uh, let me give you some comparison to kind of help bring light to why this is confusing. Um when Muhammad died, to contrast, when Muhammad died, he died at the age of 62 uh, in his bed, surrounded by uh, nobles and great warriors. Uh, at the time of his death, he controlled the whole of the Arabian Peninsula, as well as many, many other kingdoms, and he had tens and tens of thousands of followers at the time of his passing. A little different to Jesus. 
And this is what's caused the confusion, right? So at the time of Jesus' death, both Christian and non-Christian sources alike kind of recognized that there was about 12 to kind of 50 followers at the time that he was crucified in a way that was meant to dissuade people from following and, and had a history of doing so. And that he uh, died in a time and period which opposed him and his followers for the next centuries. And so how is it that these two kind of, it makes sense why one is a dominant world religion but not the other? Uh, there's a historian and sociologist called Rodney Stark and here's what he kind of has concluded. He said the main reason is this, that about 200 years after Jesus' death, there were two major world plagues. And in these plagues, each lasting about 15 years, the world was devastated. They estimate somewhere between 25 and 30% of the population of the world at that time died. Think about that. Compare that to COVID, right? One in every four people, one in every four households, one in every three households. And at the time, they they didn't know much about the plague, uh, but here's what they did know. They knew that it passed through human contact. And so what happened was, when people got sick, men, women, children, even doctors fled. And so these were times where cities just completely evacuated. And everyone headed for the hills. In fact, we have accounts where young children would get sick or mothers would get sick and their families would just have to leave and abandon them. And in a time when everyone headed for the hills, the Christians at that time didn't. And it's really well documented that these Christians then cared for the sick, took care of them, changed kind of bedpans, hydrated them. And as a result... Some some of those Christians got the plague and died, but in fact, with a little bit of nursing, actually many of those people that were sick were actually able to regather their strength and recover. And the result was Christianity and the church exploded. In fact, Rodney Stark says this, he says, It is not that they were braver or more moral than their pagan counterparts. Simply that they acted according to the, uh, they acted in logic according to their own worldview. Here's what he says. Pagans had absolutely no assurance that there was an afterlife or that there was anything good about it. They had no assurance of a salvation beyond. 
Rather, the Christians knew this world, as wonderful as it is, is just the prelude for something more. They knew that death could do nothing but translate them into glory. Isn't that a fascinating insight from a historian? And what happened was, two centuries after Jesus, these Christians lived such radical lives that looked like foolishness to everyone else. But it was wise in the eyes of God and the church exploded. And so we get to verse 18. Verse 18 where Paul says to the Corinthian church, If any one of you thinks that he is wise by the standard of this age, he should become a fool. That's a fool in the eyes of the world, so that he may become wise. You hear what he's saying? That if you really want to be wise, wise in the eyes of God, it will mean that you become a fool in the eyes of the world. That to be wise in the eyes of God will mean that you live in such a way that looks foolish to everyone else who doesn't have that worldview. I have a friend who is a lawyer in a very prestigious law firm. I don't even want to know how much he makes in an hour. That would make me far too sad and miserable. But he, um, every Wednesday morning, gives up every Wednesday morning to teach a year three class scripture. And the rest of his law firm think he's a joke. But, here's my inkling, there's something in them that you kind of go... He's a joke, but there's something in that that I admire. A fool to the eyes of the world, wise to the eyes of God. That we ought to spend our money in such a way that looks foolish to everyone else. Do you remember the story of uh, Jesus where he talks about um, that the kingdom of God is like a man who stumbles across a field. And in the field, he finds a precious pearl. And what does that man do? Goes and gives up everything to buy the field. What do you think his family and friends are thinking? What's he doing? Throwing his life away. A fool in the eyes of the world. Wise in God's eyes. That you and I ought to show grace and forgiveness to people in such a way that is perplexing to those around us. Do you extend forgiveness? Do you extend mercy to others in such a way that is kind of baffling to your non-Christian friends and family? 
Do you spend your money? One of my uh, other friends, she, her and her husband, they, uh, all of their friends are paying off their house, their home loans, 10 years earlier than them. Why? Because they're not giving to church. But my friend, I won't say their name, my friend, uh, her and her husband have gone, we are committed to being generous to our church, even if that means that we don't pay off our home loan at the same rate that everyone else does. One of my friends, Kat, I'll say her name, uh, she um, is 40 years old now and she's never been overseas. You know why? Every time she saves up money to, and gets to that point where she is able to go overseas and goes, yep, I'm going to do this. Something happens at church and they're in need of money. And she goes, I can, I've, I can contribute to that. Operating on a different set of values. Foolish to the world and yet wise to God. Do I think my friend Kat, do I think my friend uh, who's this lawyer, do I think that they will regret these things 2,000 years from now? Not a chance. And hear me, there is nothing wrong with going overseas on holiday. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car or paying off a house. There is nothing wrong with a fulfilling career. But we are given gifts in order that we might use those gifts in such a way that show others around us that these gifts are not our God, but that God is our God. God has given you money so that you might use that money in such a way that demonstrates to the world that money is not your God, but that He is. God has given you career, friendships, in so that you might use those friendships, those careers, in such a way that show that they are not your God, but that He is. It has been said, we should not fear failure, rather we should fear succeeding at the things in life that never really matter. And so we get to verse 1 of chapter 4. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Here's what he's saying. Um, in ancient times, it wasn't often the master of uh, the household who would run the household. Instead, what they would do is they would get a kind of a servant and uh, that servant, that slave, would be the steward of the household. That slave steward would look after the finance, the master's finances, the master's property, the master's fields, even the master's own family. 
And at the end of the day, that steward would need to give an account to the master. And so here's what he says. Here's how you ought to think of us. Here's how you ought to think of yourselves as stewards, as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with what? The most precious thing God has. The message by which people might be saved and his own household. The secret things of God. And so he says, So now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And because of that, Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you. He says, I just don't care what you think. Not this, don't get this wrong, um, this, Paul, this isn't apathy about what people think. Paul cares a great deal about what people think. What Paul is saying is he doesn't care about what people think about him. And too often if you are anything like me, my fleshly way is the opposite. I care more about what people think about me and I'm willing to sacrifice what people think about the truth. That I don't have that hard conversation, that I don't confront someone, encourage someone, spur someone on, you know, I don't, I just let people go. Why? Because I'm nervous about what they think of me. Not about how they're actually going or how they're actually walking with God or hey, they haven't been to church or youth group in six, seven weeks. I should really just check in or make sure they're going alright or um, I should say, hey, I'm concerned about where your heart's at because these are the things I'm seeing you drawn to and these are the things I'm seeing you prioritise over God and, and I love you and I care about you and I don't do that. Paul says, I just don't care what you think about me. I care greatly about what you think. And too often we are the opposite. Uh, one of the things uh, that only people really in this section of the church will know about me is um, that I am a terrible singer. Uh, I, I am a, a little... I've, I've seen people here as we're singing and lifting praises to God going, is someone stepping on a cat? Um, that's a little bit kind of my natural leaning. That's kind of what I like to lean into when singing. Uh, I am, I'm just not a gifted singer, but I love to sing. Not the greatest mix. But he, uh, I'll I'll tell you a story. Um, uh, I remember sitting next to someone and after church standing up and, and they turned to me and they said, man, worship sounds so much more genuine when it's coming from someone who's a terrible singer. Thank you. 
But here's also what I know about myself. That sometimes when I get concerned about people hearing me sing, I start to tune down my singing and sing quieter. And when I do so, I am not lifting my voice in praise to God, nor am I encouraging and singing those words to my brothers and sisters that need to hear them from another voice. That when we become overly concerned about what other people think of us, We fail to love God as we ought and to love our brother and sisters as they need. And Paul says, I have learned the secret to freedom. And that is, I've been entrusted. I've been entrusted with God's precious gift. And it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful, not, not, not to others, but to the master. And so I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. In fact, he says, indeed, I do not even judge myself. You see, uh, in our culture, we tend to go, yeah, you shouldn't get validation or you shouldn't get your value from the opinions of others. The only thing that matters in life is not what others think of you, but what you think of you. That's what our culture says, right? The only thing that matters is what you think of you. And you know what Paul says? I don't even care what I think of me. And you know why that's good news? Because what you think of you is sometimes terrible. It is, right? Or it's just flippant and fragile. Or it's fickle. And one day you can feel great about yourself and the next day you feel terrible. Do you want to hear what Madonna says about herself? Some of you say, no, next. <laughs> I think Madonna shows an incredible amount of, um, of self-awareness here. Here's what she says. She said she realised that my drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I still feel mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. And my struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. Do you hear what she's saying? You know why I work as hard as I can to prove to myself that I'm somebody. And the next day I wake up and I need to do it all over again. I still need to prove that I'm somebody. I still need to prove, in her words, that I'm not mediocre. 
He says, Paul says, My conscience is clear, but that doesn't even make me innocent. I don't care even what I think about myself, for it is the Lord who judges me. And so he fixes his eyes forward to that final judgment day, to the Lord's judgment. And he says, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. What Paul is saying is that on that final day, when everyone is gathered around the Lamb, and everyone is exalting angels and lions and the, the mountains and oceans, when they are lifting praise to the glory of Jesus, you know what it says he will do? Pray that he will turn his voice and eyes to me and praise Jamie McKenzie. And it almost seems heretical to say, right? Like, It seems wrong, and yet it's there, verse 5, that at that time each, and in fact in the Greek the the individuality of each is emphasised, at that time each will receive their praise from God. And so let me ask you this. What will happen if God speaks and at his word Galaxies are formed. At his word, oceans are stilled, mountains are raised, black holes come into being. What will happen? What will happen to my heart when I hear him speak words of praise to me? Let me finish with this. Two illustrations. I think for Paul, for Paul he lives the way he lives. Why? Because I think he's imagining God nodding at him for being the fool that he is. Let me explain that. Uh, As a preacher, sometimes... uh, the hardest part, like I've had times where you, you preach parts and uh, your jokes aren't landing. That's more often than not the case. Um, or you're, you're speaking on a difficult part. I remember once preaching on a judgment, because it was in the passage, right? Judgment there, speaking on that. And, and it's part of you just goes, how's this going? And then... I remember two people standing up in the middle of church and walking straight out. And I looked at the front right 
and there's this little old lady called Ethel, and she was sitting there just nodding. And there's something in that which just for me, just start second guessing and you see the nodder and it just puts kind of fire in your belly, conviction in your legs. And that is what Paul is doing. As, as he is a fool for Christ, he's imagining looking up and seeing God and, and while everyone think, else thinks he's an idiot, he, he sees and imagines God there nodding at him. Keep going. Yeah. Why? Because Paul knows whose eyes really matter. He knows whose eyes really matter. I think he's like a good, it's like a good father. A good father who's having a tea party with his daughters. The dad who sits down at a table that is far too small for him. Wearing a princess crown and makeup. And he looks like a fool to everybody else. But he knows whose eyes really matter. And he knows as he looks to his five-year-old daughter and she looks to him that he is the prettiest princess in all the land. And he plays to the audience of one, the one that matters. Let us live our lives doing the same. Let's pray. Our God and King, our Saviour and our Friend, our Master who has entrusted us with the things of greatest importance. We pray that you might help us to live in light, not of what others think, not even what we ourselves think. We pray that we might live in light of that last day, of the judgment to come, and of that final time when each each who has proven faithful, the faithful fool for you, wise in your eyes, might receive praise from your lips. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.